Welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Ziani Bat, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and David Smith, Manager of Henderson High Income Trust. Many funds invest in one type of asset, such as equities or bonds, but some have exposure to more than one, such as Henderson High Income Trust, which is managed by today's guest, David Smith. David, why does Henderson High Income invest in both equities and bonds? Firstly, you know, I see the trust as very much a UK equity income product. But I think, again, as you, as you rightly point out, the one thing that differentiates us from, from the peer group really is that ability to own bonds. So why do we do it? I think, firstly, we do it to increase the income of the overall trust. You know, and you should see that in combination with the gearing within the within the uh, within the trust as well. So one of the benefits of being an investment trust is the ability to use debt to uh, to fund some of your asset purchases. So we use that in terms of borrowing quite cheap finance at the moment to invest in a broadly stable portfolio of bond assets. It's quite a nice way of generating extra income for the trust. So actually, the overall dividend yield on the uh, on Henson High Income is probably higher than, than than your average, really. I guess the other uh, benefit as well of owning some of the bonds is actually through an investment cycle, it dampens down the overall volatility of the trust. You know, bonds are typically less volatile than, than, than equities. Okay, I mean, on that note, did your exposure to bonds help to mitigate the effects of choppy markets last year? I mean, last year was, was still difficult for the trust. Uh, and I'm sure we, we can go, go on and talk through that a bit. But actually... You know, having that bonds did help us, you know, dampen down that volatility a bit. When I look at the the actual performance of the bond portfolio, you know, it fell by about 1%. So in absolute terms, still fell a little bit. But actually relative to the FTSE All Share, which was down more like 11% last year in 2018, again, on a relative sense, it, it, it was, a, was a lot less volatile than, say, the equity market. Okay, and what kind of bonds are these that you hold? So it, it, it can be anything from government bonds to, to corporate bonds. I think if you look at where uh, the the availability of yield at the moment on government, we don't own any at the moment because they're just too low for us. So it's generally in corporate bonds. Um, so John Portillo and Jenna Barnard in our bond team, you know, they look after the, uh, the the stock selection within that bond portfolio. You know, and I think within that and in the corporate world, you know, we've, we, we've both got investment grade credit. Uh, corporate bonds, but also high yielding uh, corporate bonds as well. Okay. Now, you mentioned you think of it very much as a UK equity income trust. So what percentages in UK equity income and what percentages in bonds? So, so uh, I mean, we're measured against a benchmark, which is 80% equities, 20% in bonds. At the moment, we're about 85 in equities and 15 in bonds of, of, of the gross portfolio. Okay. Now, turning to your benchmark, um, all of the bonds mitigated volatility last year. Um, during 2018, the trust overall return actually underperformed the hybrid benchmark, which I think, as you said, is 80% FTSE All Share and 20% ICE Bank of America Merrill Lynch Sterling Non-Gilts Index. What was the reason for the um, underperformance? Yeah, I think there, there's two aspects to it. Firstly, you know, I think the the, the the, uh, the stock selection within the UK equity portfolio was was disappointing. Um, you know, in a, in, a, in a tough market for equities, you know, our financial holdings, so typically the asset managers, so Jupiter, uh, Standard Life, Aberdeen, you know, some of these companies, you know, were particularly poor performers. You know, falling markets is never good for an asset manager. Um, there's other, you know, other issues there, you know, outflows, uh, margin pressures, etc. So, you know, having exposure there, 
you know was was pretty poor but also on the on the other side you know you had some of the more traditional income sectors the likes of tobacco the likes of telecoms where we do have holdings again you know two two sectors which are very good for income but just disappointing in terms of the capital side and then the other aspect of the underperformance was really the gearing within the trust you know i think gearing does give give you a benefit over the longer term but you know clearly in in weaker markets it accentuates some of those falls of the nav Okay, I mean, jumping to the issue queuing, um, you've actually, according to Winterflood, anyway, got about 28%. I mean, that's quite high, let's say, relative to your average equities, uh, sort of made in market trust. Why is it so high and do you expect to keep it around that level? So I think uh, as of the end of March, it's, it, it's actually 24%. So it's mm. not quite as high as, as, as 28 I think one of the things um, that you need to look at the gearing is the bond portfolio. So we do have an element of structural gearing. So again, as I said before, you know, using cheap finance to... Um, to fund the bond portfolio which is you know should be traditionally state more stable assets and equities again is there to boost the overall income so at the moment 18 percent of that 24 percent is very much geared towards that bond portfolio so once you strip out that gearing towards the bonds the actual gearing towards equity is more like six six percent at the moment which again is kind of a, a more traditional way of looking at investment trust gearing and more in line with say some of the some of the some of the sort of sector peers uh, certainly the uk equity income sector Okay. Um, I suppose that said, um, it would it be fair to say that having a level of gearing, regardless of you know how it's deployed, does it increase the risk of a trust relative perhaps to one that has, like you say, maybe six percent gearing overall? Um, I mean, clearly, clearly, you know, having gearing in down markets will will not be helpful in terms of um, enhancing some of those some of that negative performance i think when you look at it over the longer term you know equity markets clearly rise one of the key benefits of investment trust is having that ability to gear so to produce to boost both your income and your capital return over the longer term so i guess in in shorter term volatile markets yes it can increase that risk but actually the, over the longer term i think it does have a very bene- very good benefit for 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 investment trust especially henderson high income Okay. Now, um, as uh, you you pay a, a very attractive level of dividends, and quite often trusts that do that trade at premium to net asset value. You have um, the trust has you know quite often. This year, it's actually moved out to a discount to net asset value. Is this because of the underperformance in twenty eighteen, or, or what? What are the reasons there? Um, I, I don't think it is down to performance. I, mean, I think if you, if you look at the performance so far this this year, we've had a very strong bounce back in the NEV performance, uh, both in absolute terms and relative to the benchmark. So actually over a 12-month period, we're now outperforming that benchmark, um, but yet we still trade at a discount. I think what it is, is it's just a, a bit of a lack of bias for UK equity assets in general, both the UK market and probably funds within that. Um, and it's for one very good reason. There's a lot of uncertainty around the political environment in the UK. Whether that changes in the short term, I, I, I don't know. Um, Never do I. <laughs> exactly. Um, but hopefully we try and look at the things we can control. And, and that's about, you know, making sure that we pay the dividend. We hopefully grow it into the longer term. You know, we, we try and own good quality companies that give you good capital appreciation. And then hopefully if we deliver on the performance, if we deliver on the dividend, hopefully that, 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 that discount will move back up to, uh, back up to a premium. Okay. I mean, do you expect that to happen anytime soon? Or? Uh, it, it, it's hard to say. I, I, I mean, I think if you look across the wider sector, you know, the discount that's on Henderson High Income is not uh, unusual when you compare it to where most of the trusts in the ASE 
you know some of the UK equity sectors there. Um, I think if you do get a bit of certainty around the UK, UK political situation, then I, I think people will be more comfortable coming in and buying UK equities. Certainly, uh, certainly if you look at the valuation on the UK market, it's incredibly cheap versus the global indices. So there's a valuation attraction there. But for whatever reason, we kind of know what it is, but investors are sitting on the sidelines. And I think that's the one thing markets hate, investors hate is uncertainty. So as soon as we get clear of that, then I think people will have more confidence coming in, coming back in. Okay. Now, um, UK equities, uh, people may not like them, but they've been very good at delivering dividends. And uh, the Link Dividend Monitor said they uh, enjoyed dividend growth of 15.7% during the first quarter of 2019, which sounds great. But it also reports that part of the reason for this was exchange rates rather than actual dividends growing. Um, and it says the underlying growth of 5.5%, which is considerably lower, uh, was weaker than expected. So how reliable are UK equity dividends likely to be going forward? Yeah, I think I think the outlook for dividends in the UK is probably OK. Um, you know, I don't think we're going to see high high levels of dividend growth but i still think you'll see growth probably low to mid single digits but when i look at payout ratios uh, for the market in, in general you know they're around about sort of 55% which is in line with historical average so we're kind of not in that you know excess territory where we feel like the 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 mean company is overpaying that dividend you know I, I think dividends are sustainable from here you know when you think back to um 2008 2009 when you saw big dividend cuts in the markets you know that came from you know uh, the banking sector really and you think about the banking sector today it's been completely recapitalized dividends are now growing um again to sort of more attractive levels from here so you know where we are today you know even if you do see you know the uk ahead into recession for whatever reason then i think dividends are still more sustainable from where we are today Okay. And um, what areas of the UK equity market um, look like they offer the best um, income opportunities at the moment? I I think it depends what you're looking for in terms of income. Is it just out and out yield or is it dividend growth? I suppose for, for, for income attractions, I think the tobacco sector really screens uh, very attractively at the moment. Uh, the likes of Imperial Browns is now yielding 9%. Uh, British American Tobacco is yielding 7.5%. You know, these companies haven't reached these these dividend yield levels since, you know, the, the late 90s. And you think back to that time period, you know, there was a lot of regulatory uncertainty then. You roll forward, there's a lot of more regulatory uncertainty today. I think when we do our stock analysis on the cash flows of the businesses, still think they have incredible cash flows that well cover the dividends. So I think you have to become very, very, very bearish on the outcome of any regulatory uh, outcomes in the US to think that the cash flows can't can't cover those dividends. So I think the dividends are sustainable, so the dividends will get paid and the shares should see a strong rating from that. In terms of dividend growth, um, you know, one, I think one of the advantages of being a relatively small trust, we're around about 300 million of gross assets, you know, we can move down that market cap scale and actually we're still seeing good dividend growth from some of our FTSE 250 names so the likes of Hilton Food Groups the likes of Big Yellow Intermediate Capital you know they've been growing their dividends at double digit rates and actually for the foreseeable future we think that can continue. Okay so 
do you expect to be able to raise Henderson High Income's own dividend this year? Um, well, it's certainly, uh, I mean, it's a board decision. I, I don't want to, uh, you know, second guess them at all. But I think when I look at the revenue account so far this year, it looks pretty healthy. Uh, when I think about the outlook for overall dividends for the market, you know, low single digit, mid single digit growth, it still looks okay. Uh, and when I think about the revenue reserves that Trust has, it's got nine months worth of revenue reserves. So I think the signs are looking good. But again, it, it's, as I said, it's a kind of a board's decision, really. Okay. And I mean, out of interest, what is the trust dividend policy? Does the board aim to raise it every year or is it just kind of wait and see? Do they have a a line on that? Yeah, I mean, we, we don't have a state of objective to grow the dividend, but it's certainly an aim of the board that they would like to increase it year on year, a gradual a gradual increase as long as it's sustainable into the longer term. I think, you know, last year was the sixth year in a row that we've 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 increased that dividend and it's been on average greater than inflation. And I think, you know, for shareholders that's what they want. They don't just want the high income. They also want one that's going to grow at or, or sort of in line or slightly above inflation. So I think that's kind of as long as it's sustainable into the longer term, that's kind of the thing that that we would like to do with this trust. Okay. Now, we've spoken about the bonds you invest in, the UK equity income you invest in. The Trust also has some overseas listings, um, from what I could see in the last factory, in the US and Switzerland. Why have you invested some assets uh, in the US and Switzerland? The US and Switzerland for two completely different reasons, really, actually. One of the things we did last year was to increase the weight into bonds. So where I've, I've said we're at, we're at 85, uh, 15% typically at the moment, uh, we were at 90, 10 last year. And I think it was just a sign that we wanted to increase bonds because it, it, to go a little bit more defensively, I think the market outlook is, is uncertain globally, not just the UK. Um, but the problem in the UK, if you want to increase in, um, in investment-grade corporate bonds in the UK, you know, the yields on offer are particularly low. Actually, within the US market, we're able to buy good investment grade bonds. So bonds that are uh, issued from the likes of Amazon, from McDonald's, uh, um, Lockheed Martin, a defense company, you know, they were offering yields of say four, four and a half percent. So we were able to utilize our ability to go a little bit overseas and invest in the US because it gave us that opportunity to continue to own investment grade bonds in good companies on attractive yields. Uh, in terms of some of my Swiss holdings, um, you know, in the UK, uh, the pharmaceutical sector is quite concentrated in terms of number of stocks. So it's only AstraZeneca or GlaxoSmithKline you, c- you can invest in. But actually, again, you know, going overseas gives you that ability to diversify within that sector. So I own Roche, uh, a Swiss uh, pharmaceutical company, but also Sanofi uh, as well, so a French pharmaceutical company. So again, in sort of increasing the company's uh, the trust exposure to more defensive sectors, but going overseas so you don't have too much concentration within number of holdings. What would you say the main risks at the moment to the trust holdings? And are you doing anything in particular to mitigate them? Yeah, I, I think there's uh, there's two main risks out there. I think, you know, there's, there's, there's debate about the global economy. It's slowing. Are we late cycle? Are we getting close to the end of the cycle? Um, and then the other one is the more specific UK political risks. Um, I think on the first first uh, first point, you know, as I've sort of alluded to, we've been starting to go a little bit more defensively, um, you know, adding to adding to bonds and actually where we've been adding to the equity portfolio. It's been more defensive holdings, so likes of pharmaceuticals, etc., is a good example of that. Maybe some some more consumer staple companies as well. In terms of you know the domestic risk, uh, the, the political risk in the UK. Um, you know, valuations are still attractive for some of those domestic names, um, so I think there's still a place in the portfolio for them. 
But I think where we where we do own some of those domestic cyclicals, we're trying to focus on the really good quality ones. So you know, strong brands, uh, strong market leader positions, good business models, robust balance sheets. So actually, in a in a sort of no deal hard Brexit scenario, these companies will survive and probably thrive into the longer term. And actually, in a in, in a more softer environment, they they should still outperform uh, from here. So it's not not that we will exit completely, but I think you know you just focus on the good quality names when that when that when, you know when, when the outlook is more uncertainty, and you make sure you have that diversification uh, across the whole of the trust. Okay, what will be some one or two examples of uh, these names? Um, so I guess on the on the on the sort of defensive side, as as I sort of spoke about, you know, some of those pharmaceutical names. So you know, these businesses, you know, irrespective of the you know economic environment, people should still you know require drugs for for, for treatments, uh, etc. I guess something like a Unilever is another good example of a of, of, of a sort of defensive name where you know they sell everyday items and you know people are unlikely to go without them. You know, even if you know times are a bit tough for their uh, disposable income. I suppose in terms of some of the more cyclical names that we like, um, the quality cyclicals, you know, something like a domestic one would be a Whitbread, um, you know, owner of, of Premier Hotels, you know, market leader in terms of budget hotels in the UK. It's a strong, recognisable brand. Uh, it's got a consistent offering uh, and it's got it's got a very robust balance sheet. Um, it's got freehold backing. You know, it's a good quality name. Yes, you know, the short term outlook for the business is is, is tough. But actually, given on the valuation it's on at the moment, you look at the fundamentals and the strength of the business, actually, I think it's a very good investment for the very long term. Um, and that's kind of, you know, Brexit has thrown out some of those opportunities uh, within the UK market. Okay. Now, Henderson High Income Trust, uh, no surprises, has a focus on income. But to what extent do you balance the need for high income and a good total return? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, people invest in equities because they expect a capital return. Um, and I think the way that Henderson High Income set up, you know, using that gear in, uh, having the bond portfolio to boost the overall income of the trust, it means actually within the UK portfolio, I don't have to own loads of very high yielding, no growth or low growth companies. I can sort of blend it. So I can still own some of those Lower yielding names are often more in terms of capital appreciation. You know, the Dadjos of this world, uh, Reed Elsevier, you know, some of my small cap holdings, Cranswick, uh, uh, etc. You know, where I actually think that the capital uh, capital return story in the longer term is very attractive, but they are low yielding at the moment. Uh, and that's, you know, to be able to do that and to have that balance within the trust, you know, is, is a real benefit. Okay. So bearing that in mind, when you're selecting say equities um you know what's your approach what what criteria uh do we have to meet so i think i think the stock selection process i kind of break it down into into three legs really um do your fundamentals do your financial analysis and look at valuation and i always compare it to a three-legged stool without without one of the legs it all falls over so look at the fundamentals the things we're looking for are um you know, strong brands, strong franchises, uh, good market leadership positions, strong management teams, um, you know, good quality defensive business models. Um, then I look forward to, you know, the financial returns a company can deliver. Um, 
you know we're looking at um, how sustainable is are how sustainable is growth uh, how does a company earn its profits are those profits sustainable into the longer term how do those profits turn transfer into into cash flow and dividends and does a company have a very robust business uh, very robust balance sheet um, and then you look at valuation it's all very fine very well fine and a good quality company and fundamentals one that's got good or improving financials but if it's already in the price then your upside is pretty limited it's about finding good companies with good prospects but always at the right price Okay, thank you, David. A really interesting update on Henderson High Income Trust and the state of UK equity income. Life is more expensive than ever for those aged under 40, with high university costs and house prices at the same time as lower job security and less generous pensions. So if you're a parent or a grandparent, you might want to put money aside to help your children or grandchildren with major life costs. Now, there's a number of ways to do this, and the ones you choose will depend in part on what costs you want to cover. So, Zayani, you've been looking at this. Um, If, for example, you want to help your children or grandchildren uh, cover university costs, what could be a good way to save up for this? Hi, Leonora. One good way to save in for the costs of early adulthood, like university, is a junior individual savings account or a JISA. So the way that works is that only a parent or a guardian with parental responsibility can open an account, but thereafter anyone can contribute to it. The annual allowance is £4,368, um, and there are two types, a cash JISA and a stocks and shares JISA, and the allowance can't be carried forward. But uh, the child will have access to the money um, after they turn 18. Now, if you're investing over a long period of time, like 10 years or more, um, a stocks and shares dryser would be best because the time scale is long enough to invest in high-risk investments like equities, um, but have enough time to recover and bring in high returns too. Dryser also offers flexibility for you to invest small amounts regularly if you don't want to do a big lump sum annually. And this is great if you have family members or friends who are contributing um, because you can allocate how much each person will contribute at the start of the tax year. Um, And also 16 to 17 year olds can also contribute to their own Dryser. So that helps with costs. Now, you mentioned that some um, kids can actually access the money when they're 18. Is, is that a good thing? Or <laughs> yeah. Um, so there is obviously debate about that. Um, and that's one of the disadvantages of a JISA, which is they might not use it for what you want them to use it for. So instead of university, it might be a really fast car. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is research which suggests that most of children keep their money invested. Um, there are the disadvantages, though, which is that if you needed to take the money out for short to medium term emer- emergencies, um, you can't because the money's locked away till 18. Um, and there are obviously fees to pay like platform fees. OK, now, if you think your kids are tearaways um, and they're going to buy that Harley Davidson or whatever when they turn <laughs> 18, uh, what could be a solution to this? You know, how can you save for them? But make sure it doesn't get blown um, on, uh, let's say, what you didn't intend. Right. So one good solution is to use your own ISA. Um, so contributions to your own ISA can still be spent on your child or grandchild. Um, and of course, you retain control of how and when the money is spent. It's a good strategy if you're not using all of your total annual allowance, which is £20,000. Um, and once again, family and friends can contribute to it. So it's great as a, in lieu of gifts for the child. And you don't have to pay any tax on capital growth or dividends from assets held within, an ISA, within your own ISA. 
If you want to save, let's say, for the longer term, looking beyond um, early adulthood, be a good way to do this. For young adults, um, there's a lot of different financial pressures, like getting onto the housing ladder. Um, and one way you can help with them is by taking away perhaps some of the worry with longer term savings like a pension. And so you could invest in a junior self-invested personal pension or a junior SIP. And a parent needs to open a junior SIP, but thereafter, again, anyone can contribute to it. A great thing about a junior SIP is that you get government tax relief. And of course, even though control of the pension passes to the child or grandchild when they turn 18, they can't access it until they're 55. So you're more or less not at risk of their money being spent frivolously. Again, you can put in an annual lump sum or contribute through regular monthly contributions. And most um, investment platforms will require a minimum monthly contribution. But they're also great because they're inheritance tax efficient because um, any money that you put in there can be treated as a lifetime gift, which will therefore reduce the cost of your estate or the value of your estate. Okay. Now, are there any downsides to saving into um, a pension for your children or grandchildren? Well, the first is that the money's locked away for so many years. Um, So it's not good for emergencies. It's really only ideal to set up pension savings if the child or grandchild has other savings that can be accessed sooner. And this age is likely to go up to 57 in 2028. And I guess finally, junior SIP providers such as investment platforms um, can charge a range of fees like annual in- admission fees, dealing fees, and if you invest in funds, then they will have fees too. Okay, thank you, Zayani. And see this week's money section for her full report on how to build up savings for your children and grandchildren. That brings us to the end of today's show, but see this week's issue of a website for more on equity income, SIPs and ISAs and saving for children. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.